0: Thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. What will the Antichrist be like, and from what religion or faith group may he originate from? This is part two of Dr. Rocky Ramsey's message about Satan's Supermen, the Antichrist and the False Prophet, from Revelation chapter 13. We pick up where we left off with Pastor Rocky explaining the Antichrist.
1: Is it staged to upstage the two witnesses? Okay, go back to two witnesses. For all those months, the witnesses preached there in Jerusalem, and anybody who came to try to stop them, and it probably happened a lot early on, I guess eventually nobody tried, because everybody who came, fire came out of their mouth and devoured them, okay? Obviously, these are two pretty powerful guys. Nobody can beat them. But then God gives the Antichrist the power to kill them. And then they lay in the grave and so, okay, the Antichrist is more powerful than the two witnesses, right? Well, three or four days later, they come back to life. And then they ascend visibly into a cloud and disappear. So now you're saying, well, the Antichrist doesn't have the most power, the witnesses have the most power. They died and came back to life. That's more powerful than than the Antichrist. So it's a real good chance that it's staged. Staged, not meaning it's faked, but he does it on purpose. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one could take his life from him, but he could lay it down and he could take it up again. The Antichrist, remember, is trying to mimic Christ. He comes on a white horse, just like Jesus comes on a white horse. And so it's very likely he goes on international television and internet and says that he's going to die, be killed, and he's going to come back to life. And sure enough, he does. He probably tells the people he's going to lay his life down and he can take it back again. And he'll die, he'll be buried, he'll go to Hades, and he'll come back. And Revelation 13.3 tells us that the whole earth is amazed. How could this guy do this? He must be more powerful than the witnesses. He announced what he was gonna do. 13.4 indicates that the people worship the Antichrist out of fear. Needless to say, you would fear somebody who said he was gonna die, and he would be back, he'd come back to life from the dead. Yeah, that guy's something different. Now here's the fourth thing we see about the Antichrist. That is that he returns to world leadership as a beast. Remember he first came as a peacemaker. He was a warrior, had a bow, but he did not come with arrows. He makes peace with Israel, which is a huge miracle for the Muslims and the Jews to be at peace. And then he he's given a crown. But now after he comes back from the dead, he during the midpoint of the tribulation he comes back as a beast. Now he has arrows. Now he's a warrior. In 13.7, he wages war against those who've begun to follow Christ during the first half of the tribulation. And here, five things take place. Number one, first of all, the Antichrist claims to be God. You read about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4. There Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, For the end will not come unless the apostasy, which means the falling away, comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So that's what he does. He claims to be God. Goes in, desecrates the temple. That's what Daniel and Paul both call the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist does this. Because nobody but the Jews are supposed to be in that temple, which tells us that the Antichrist is not a Jew. Number two, he subdues his opponents. In Daniel 7.24, it tells us that he will subdue three other kings who oppose him. Number three, the Antichrist turns against believers. Revelation 13, seven says that he makes war with the tribulation saints, that he overcomes them as he does all the rest of the people who dwell upon the earth. Number four, the Antichrist is worshiped by the world. In Revelation thirteen eight, it says that everyone except those who follow Christ will worship the Antichrist. 13.15 says that those who do not worship the image of the beast are killed just as in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, which is what put, if you remember, put Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego and in the fire. They wouldn't bow down to this image to Nebuchadnezzar. And then the fifth thing we have under that is the Antichrist now rules as a tyrant. He's no longer a peacemaker, he's a tyrant. Now, Revelation 13.2 tells us that he's like a leopard, He's like a bear and he's like a lion. I want you to turn to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, which is a prophetic chapter, it talks about these same days and these same things. And he's going to mention these same same animals, the leopard, the bear, and the lion. So turn there. We're going to read verses 3 to 7 and then verse 23 of Daniel 7. Verse 3. The four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear... And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, "Arise, devour much, eat much meat." After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. Ding, ding, ding. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. So Daniel writes in this kingdom about a lion, which most uh, scholars believe referred to Babylon. That's who took Daniel into captivity. And then he looks forward to the kingdoms of the bear, medio persia which was uh, uh, Cyrus was the Persian, and uh, uh, you know, Daniel served under two of those. Persia and, and, and Median were all together. And then the third, a leopard, uh, was, was Greece. Alexander the Great conquers them, rules the world for a period of time. And then the fourth will be the worldwide reign of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the fourth beast and his rule is the fourth kingdom. He has 10 horns. He devours, crushes, tramples underfoot, and he'll devour, tread down, and crush. Now, what I wanna do in this last section is I wanna give you my opinion of the general identity of the Antichrist, okay? It's not Henry Kissinger, okay? Some people thought it was Henry Kissinger once upon a time. And then, you know, probably somebody thought it was Obama. I don't know. You know, people are always coming up with who they think this is. We don't know at this time who specifically it's gonna be, but I think I'm gonna tell you who I think in general, the, the the kind of people he will come from. And so it's gonna make plenty of sense, but I could be mistaken, so I want you to know that. I think the Antichrist might be a Muslim, I think he'll be a Muslim. So in your outline, let's look at why the Antichrist might be a Muslim. Number one, he will begin his reign as a moderate Muslim. A moderate Muslim. Let's get along with everybody. Now there's three things I have under that. Number one, Islam will be the world's largest religion. There's 7.8 billion people in the world today. 1.9 billion of those claim to be Muslim. Two point something claimed to be Christian. But all the real Christians will be gone. And so Islam will by far be the largest religion in the world. Number two, he will make peace between Muslims and Jews. Who could better do that than a Muslim who is moderate and partied up with the Jews, giving them the freedom to worship their God? To rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount, which they've been waiting to do since they got the country back in 1947, after World War II. Who better to do that than a Jew, than a than a Muslim? And then number three, he'll rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Sorry, kind of got ahead of myself. The temple will be rebuilt. Likely that'll be the biggest piece of the bargaining. You know, you want the temple? You've been wanting to build that temple, we'll let you build that temple. But here's, here, here's what we've got to agree to. you got to know that the Muslims are in control of the Temple Mount, not the Jews, not the nation of Israel. So if you go over there, how many of you have been to Israel? Some of you have been over there? If you go over there, the day that you go up on the Temple Mount, where you can go up there on the top and see where the dome is and all that, uh, you, it's possible to be there on a day where the Muslims won't let you up there. Now, the Jews have access to the side wall of it, which you know is the Wailing Wall. So you see pictures of people going in there and praying and all that. But on top of it, the, you have to go through, there's, there's gates and armed guards and all that. Even though it sits right in the middle of Jerusalem, it belongs to Muslims. And so, uh, so you can't go up there without that. So here they, they cut this deal. The Antichrist says, yeah, build, rebuild your temple, worship your God. And boy, that now everybody's happy. Seemingly. So he starts as this moderate Muslim. Then I believe he'll become a fundamental Muslim. A fundamental Muslim. Number one, he might declare himself Islam's last prophet, Muhammad being the first. Number two, he will use his cabinet of kings to destroy worldliness. This is, is, I find, real fascinating. God is going to judge sin, right? And normally we think of you know, God judging sin with hell, but he's gonna judge sin here on earth. You know, he does that along the way, but it's gonna happen big in the Revelation. And he's gonna do it with people who aren't Christians. So turn to Revelation 17, and in chapter 17 and 18, again, I told you there's, there, it's talking about Babylon as if it's a city, but really it's a belief system. It's symbolic of sin and worldliness. And, and Babylon is called a harlot. Now, verses 15 and 16, here's what it says God says to, to, to uh, Jesus, says to John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will, watch this, hate the harlot. And they will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. So God will use the Muslims to execute his justice. Now think about it. The West, which we're a part of, is the perpetrator of sin and worldliness. Agreed? You say, well, maybe not just America but what's known as the West. Where are all the strip clubs? In the West. Where are all the drugs? In the West. Where's all the everything that shouldn't be? It's in the West. Now there's a lot of good things in the West, but it's where all the sin and worldliness is. And Muslims hate this. I submit to you that Muslims are more bothered by sin and worldliness than church people. Because most of our church people are in on it. Amen? Or oh me. You know, survey after survey says that people inside the church don't live that much different people outside the church. Now, I think a big reason for that is because there's all kinds of lost people in churches. But the bottom line is the disdain for sin and worldliness is greater among Muslims than it is among Christians. or people who call themselves Christians. Where do women wear things that cover their whole body, including their face and all you can see is their eyes? Muslims. Go to a Christian singles party at a pool. See if they're dressed like that. No, they won't be. And so God will use these Muslims to execute his justice. Now look at verse 14 and 17 there in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14 says that those who are of the harlot will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He's the Lord of Lord and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. That's talking about when He returns in 19. These are the unrighteous people who wage war against the Lamb. Revelation 17, 17 says that the God has put in the hearts of the beast and the ten horns these kings to execute his purpose by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. And so what God does, as he did with the Jews, is that he uses people who were unrighteous to execute his judgment on his people that should have been righteous. If you remember, when, when they went in the promised land, God said, if you'll obey me, you'll be the head, not the tail, you'll be the borrower or the lender, not the borrower, and no, no man, no nation will ever stand against you. If you disobey me, you'll be the tail, not the head, you'll be the borrower, not the lender, and I'll bring a, a nation more wicked than you and yank you off of this land. And sure enough, it's exactly what he did. The kingdom eventually divided under, under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, The Northern Kingdom was then called Israel. The Southern Kingdom, where uh, Jerusalem is, was called Judah. The Assyrians came and carried uh, and dispersed the uh, people of Israel all over the world in 700s BC, and then right at right inside of 600 BC, Babylon came and took Judah into captivity. And so, by by uh, 575 essentially BC until 1947. The Jews were not on, there were some, but the Jews were not on their own land, this promised land God gave them. And the people who took it from them were more wicked than they were. But that's who God used to judge them. And so God will use these Muslims to wage a war against worldliness and sin on his behalf. Uh, A third thing. That I have here as we're talking about this fundamental now Muslim. He will order the execution of unbelievers. Now unbelievers here doesn't mean people who don't believe in Jesus. It means people who don't believe he's God. These are the now unbelievers I'm referring to. The Koran, the holy book of the Muslims, teaches that you are to seek to convert those who do not believe in Allah and their ways. And if you cannot convert them, you're to destroy them. After 9/11, you remember I read from the Quran. We talked about verse, passages in the Quran that said you're to set their cities on fire. And so that's what that's that's what a real, you know, when when the people say, "Well, that's not what the Muslims believe. That's what their Bible says, the Quran." And so this is exactly what'll be done in Revelation 13:15. If you don't believe in in him as God, then he will then they will you'll be put to death. Worship this man who claims to be God in his image or be executed. Now, again, I don't know for certain that the Antichrist will be a Muslim, but with all that, it makes a whole lot of sense. Now, there's a few things and more through. There was a time when it would have been hard to imagine any person being given the kind of authority and power that the Antichrist will have. What we've learned over the past year is that people who are afraid of dying will do just about anything to be or at least feel safe. You tracking with me? It likely explains how the Nazis lost their conscience. Fall in line or you'll pay. Do the unthinkable or the unthinkable will be done to you. With the COVID pandemic, governments have grabbed and been given powers like never before. Free people have unexpectedly given up their rights. And they're coming for more, count on it. Satan's supermen will easily gain power as all of the true believers in Jesus in the world are suddenly gone. The judgments start. The world is in chaos. People will be gripped and driven by unprecedented fear. Someone who can make them feel safe will easily be followed and given authority. Easily. The Antichrist will be a charismatic political leader who'll have demonic power to gain the devotion of people in the first half of the tribulation. Even the Jews will be mesmerized by him. They'll cut a deal with him. In the second half, he'll be obeyed out of fear because at that point, he will be the beast. Now, both the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to meet their doom when Jesus returns to earth. Revelation 19, 20 tells us that they'll be thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's interesting. They won't die. They're going to be thrown alive in the lake of fire. Now, I want to close with three practical things we can learn from this that are not in your outline, so you'll have to write them down somewhere. A few practical things we can learn from what we've just talked about. Number one... Some people who seem to be nice at first aren't. Some people who seem to be nice at first aren't. If you've got a lot of experience working with a lot of people, you know that a lot of people aren't who they claim to be. And at first you meet them and you're impressed, and then somewhere along the way you're no longer impressed at all. Some people seem to be really nice, somewhere along the way they turn on you, and you find out these aren't nice people at all you'll eventually discover their dark side. Both of these evil characters initially seem to be harmless and helpful. The Antichrist is he's making peace. He's, he's bringing order out of all this chaos. What a great guy. The false prophet comes, he's like a lamb. Now, well, you know, he's again, what a great guy. Over time, people who people really are shows. And so in the mid, mid-tribulation, this, this uh, all changes. Number two, never be deceived by miracles. And probably put miracles in, in quotation marks. Number one, they can be staged. It happens all the time. News report, national news reporters have exposed Christian evangelists for doing it. They set people up. They pay people to come in and get saved. These people go all around the country with them, and they get healed again and again and again and again. It's a racket. Sadly, Christians, or church people anyway, are some of the most naive people in the world. They'll believe anything. And so somebody comes in and seems to do a miracle. Oh, wow, they must be of God. Well, what we've learned in here is you can be of Satan and do miracles. And these aren't staged miracles. These guys are doing real miracles. calm down fire from heaven. Their source, somebody who, even if he does or she does a real miracle, the source of that may not be God. It may be Satan. Miracles don't prove that someone is from God. Satan can perform miracles. So that's never the... the the, the thing that someone does is you go, I believe in you because you did miracles. No, because you'll believe in the wrong person. Here's the third thing. And this, this is just a great life principle. The right thing to do is the right thing to do no matter how things turn out. The right thing to do is the right thing to do no matter how things turn out. Now, here's why I'm saying that. Most of us have done something one time. We thought, well, the right thing to do is this. So that's what we did. But then it turned out bad. Has this ever happened to anybody but me? And when it does, the first thing you think is, well, surely it must not have been the right thing to do. As if it can only be the right thing to do if it turns out the way we hoped it would. How it turns out has nothing to do with whether it was the right thing to do. The right thing to do is the right thing to do no matter how it turns out. And how it turns out doesn't prove that it was the right thing to do. If it turns out great you might have done the wrong thing. And if it turns out terrible you might have done the right thing. You say where do you get that kind of crazy thinking? From the Bible. These here do the right thing. They refuse to worship the beast and they're going to lose their lives for doing it. Well, we're going to do the right thing. We're not going to worship the beast. So so since we're doing the right thing, then nothing bad can happen to us. Well, you can die. But you did the right thing. If you remember the one of the churches in the first in letters to the churches, he tells them a persecution's coming. Some of you are going to be uh, thrown in jail. Some of you are going to be killed. But be faithful unto death. Cheer up. You know, kind of thing. Why do he say that? Because the right thing to do is the right thing to do and it has nothing to do with how it turns out. Sometimes it turns out like we hope it will. Sometimes it does not. And if it turns out different than we hoped, especially when it's something bad that we did not hope for, that doesn't mean that what we did was the wrong thing. Are you getting this? This is so important. Jesus did the right thing, agreed? And he was hated and crucified for it. The apostles did the right thing. And every one of them was persecuted and died for their faith. John, writing this book, because he's no man who's been thrown away on an island called Patmos. The right thing to do is the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. And what happens next does not determine whether or not you did the right thing. So you make the right call with a child and the child's mad at you or hates you. Well, then you must have done the wrong thing, right? No, you might have done the exact right thing. You make some leadership decision and somebody's mad at you for it. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's a big stink goes on in the office or the church or wherever else. Well, we must have done the wrong thing because people are upset. No, you might have done the exact right thing. What becomes of it does not determine if it was the right thing. It just doesn't. If, if you believe that, then Jesus and the apostles apparently did the wrong thing because it didn't turn out so well, at least not on an earthly score. Did you get that? I'm telling you, that's some life-changing stuff right there. Because if you're a parent, if you're a leader, there's gonna be times you gotta, you gotta make a decision. You gotta do something. And the right thing, does the, doing the right thing, does it always make everybody happy? No, it doesn't. Sometimes it makes people really angry. But the right thing to do is the right thing to do. And how it turns out has nothing to do whether or not it was the right thing to do.
0: The Revelation series continues next time right here, right where you're listening as Dr. Rocky Ramsey moves into chapters 14 and 15 as we study the lull before the storm. Find out what that means and join us next time. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Casts, the official podcast of Coryton Church. If you have any questions at all, visit us online at corytonchurch.com or drop us a message or comment on social media. We're at Coryton Church. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we pray God's richest blessings on your life. Give us a rating, hit subscribe, and have a fantastic day.